Hello, you're listening to Film Festival Reviews. This is Christina Kotlar, your host for this episode just before opening night of the 44th annual New York Film Festival presented by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. I had an opportunity to talk with Kent Jones, Associate Director of Programming for the Film Society. We talked about a lot of things going on in the independent film world, including what festivals he attends looking for films, uh, the technical aspects for showing these films, visual literacy, and that there is such a thing as a culture of cinema. He's also the programming director of this year's New York Film Festival Sidebar, 50 Years of Janus Films, synonymous with art cinema that features many world cinema classics and what he considered a dream to curate. Enjoy the show. Okay, so I'm with Kent Jones. Mm -hmm. Associate Director of Programming for the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Richard Penny and I are the two permanent members of the committee, the selection committee, and uh, in its latest incarnation, the other members are Philip Lopate and Lisa Schwartzbaum and John Power. I know he was telling me a little bit about you do have a couple of people that remain yeah. on staff and then keeping it fresh and, and yeah. having people with uh, different outlooks coming on board. Yeah. How did it work this year? You know, it's not. I don't even think of it in terms of years. I think of it in terms of the different compositions of people. And so far, I've been doing it for five years and it's been the same group for three years. Since I came aboard, in 2002, there have been three different groups of people, and so it's the groupings that are always different. The compositions and the chemistry between the people is always different. The chemistry between us has been, has been good. Um, you know, we all have our own points of view. We don't agree on everything, nor would we be expected to agree on everything. I mean, you know, that wouldn't make sense, nor would it be much fun if we all just sat around and had the same opinion about everything. So that's the interesting part of the process kind of finding the, the points of uh, where we diverge and converge. And it's nice when we all like something, you know. That's certainly a nice moment. There are a few movies, obviously. I can't say which ones that we all loved, and then there are other ones that, you know, divided us. But um, that's interesting, too. I like when that happens. That's one of the things that I ask a lot of people when I talk to them about film festivals, the way film festivals are made up and the yeah. programming directors and the balance and things and what they look for. And Now, this is a festival where you invite filmmakers to show their films. Mm. So what film festivals do you go to to look for uh, the type of films that you think would be right for the New York Film Festival? Um, we all go to Cannes. All of us. Um, generally, I also go to Rotterdam, and it depends because I'm invited to do jury stuff at different film festivals. I see different things in different places, but generally, I go to Rotterdam. I mean, that's you know one of the big European festivals. Venice, we don't go to because Venice, of course, comes after our selection process is done, right a right after it. So we often see most of the you know, key films that are in Venice, you know, in the midst of the screening process. But Berlin and Rotterdam fall right in the middle of the winter. So they're both in, in January, early January and late January, and so it, it becomes, uh, those are both important festivals for us. Uh, what do you look for when you look for films? 24 best movies of the year. Honestly, I mean, there's no, you know, it's a question that comes up a lot. It's sort of like, what criteria do you have? Do you look for this kind of film, that kind of film, do you look for balance? I mean, I, you know, honestly, since the composition of the festival is so heavily curated and such, since the number is so small, we're looking for nothing more 
complex in the way of criteria than the best films that we see. And really, I'm, I'm being honest when I say that. You know. You're also curating the sidebar. Mm -hmm. That was a dream to curate because, in, in the sense that every film from which you know I was drawing from was good, every title is good. You know, this is the 50th anniversary of Janus Films, synonymous with art cinema, European, Asian, you know, what we call foreign films in America, and their first exposure in America. You know, when the concept of the art house really took hold in the 50s, and you started to see, you know, the first films from Ingmar Bergman, from Michelangelo Antonioni, from Francois Truffaut, from Akira Kurosawa, more often than not, they had the Janus logo on them. You know, anybody who went to the movies during those days in the, the 60s and the 50s, 60s, and 70s remembers it's just the two-headed coin. You know, and Janus is the two-headed Roman god. And when I looked at the list of what was available, <laughs> this is, you know, most people know these titles now through the Criterion Collection, which has done most of the Janus library, but, you know, you look at the list of what's available and the thought of seeing them in brand new prints and, you know, on a big screen is just thrilling, um, you know, as a, as a viewer. The idea of curating it was very exciting. And so it was a matter of choosing the cream of the cream of just some of the greatest films that have ever been made. And so they're all in either brand new prints or pristine prints, all 35 millimeter, and it's just going to be a joy. It sounds amazing to yeah. me because, again, I'm a cinephile, but I can't say that I've seen all those films. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that you can expect is to get a new audience for them. Yeah. I'd like to sit here and say that, that there's a mission, an overriding mission, and of course there is, but then also it's just it's a golden opportunity, you know. We don't have those art houses anymore where you can yeah, see these films right. where, yeah. where the students from around, you know, downtown area, I mean, do they go to these movies anyway if they do mm. see some of them? Here's an opportunity. Mm. Who is going to see these films? Yeah. I, I would mean, absolutely go. It's on my list. You yeah. know, I have my calendar all set out for all these things. But, you know, for the emerging filmmakers, for the new filmmakers, directors or whatever, yeah. they're putting out so many films right now. Are they going to go to see this? Will this have an impact on them, yeah. or will they be influenced by yeah. this? You know, I mean, if you have anything invested in the cinema, you know, I mean, I've been watching films since I was six, okay? I'm not saying that to brag. It just happens to be who I am and, you know, the way I'm, I was formed. And so one of the, you know, greatest surprises that I've had in my life is how quickly things are forgotten, how quickly things have to be reintroduced, how things that to me seem, you know, like as if they're just standard knowledge and everybody knows them. Every 10 years or so, you'll find that someone is saying, and I mean, with a lot of excitement and, you know, someone who's younger than, you know, myself will call me and say, I just saw, you know, uh, uh, Dodsworth by William Wyler or something like that. Or I just saw The Magnificent Ambersons, you know, by Orson Welles. And the excitement is real, and it should be real, because they're very exciting films. But for them, it's new, and they've discovered it. In other words, it's not like it's being introduced to them through the school system, where, you know, you can take it for granted that if you get to be, you know, 13 or 14 years old, you're going to be reading Romeo and Juliet. You can't take it for granted that people are going to be um, seeing Citizen Kane or The Magnificent Ambersons, let alone these movies that are in foreign languages and that require subtitles. And that for many people, when they first came out in the United States, they were seen dubbed, you know, particularly Bergman's films. I remember seeing all dubbed when I was a teenager. So the other thing is there is a difference between seeing films on a small screen and seeing them on a big screen. 
I, for one, don't feel that, you know, I am not a purist in the sense that I, I know a lot of people who feel that they haven't seen something until they've seen it on a big screen. I don't really feel that way. Um, it was likely that if a film was shown on commercial television, it was likely to be cut for commercial content and also speed it up imperceptibly. I didn't know that. Yeah. Just, just speed it up ever so slightly so that you would gain, like, you know, a few minutes. That problem has been nipped in the bud because now DVD is so present. People have access to DVD players and, you know, everybody has access to DVD players to such an extent now that, that uh, videotape is, you know, virtually a thing of the past. The quality is that much better and it will, of course, continue to get better with, you know, Blu-ray and, you know, um, HD. And you're seeing things in their proper aspect ratio, meaning if it's CinemaScope, you're seeing it letterboxed so that it's, you know, um, they're the bars at the top and the, and the bottom of the screen, or you're seeing widescreen TVs where you'll get most of the image um, if, it's, if it's CinemaScope. And you're also seeing TiVo and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that, you know, aspect of it has been covered. But there is a difference, it's a different experience. In some cases, it's a different film. I mean, if you're looking at, I'm not thinking of, you know, big spectacle movies like Lawrence of Arabia. I'm thinking... They show that at AFI's yes. Silver Theater every summer, and yeah. I would go. Yeah. No, I mean, that's... Just for the experience. Well, that's something else, you know, to see that kind of spectacle that was meant to be seen in that kind of scope and with that kind of height, to see it on a big screen. The height is important, you know. I mean, Stanley Kubrick didn't want to letterbox his films because to him the height was more important. The sense of scale on a big screen, and you know, most screens these days aren't that big. Our screen is big. The scale is, is, is lost. In other words, there's a reason that people used to shoot with fewer close-ups. Because your vision was attuned to a framework that was that much greater so that you didn't, in one sense, you didn't need to. You know, the use of close-ups is a complex complex issue, but um, that's one thing. But the other thing, of course, is the quality of the 35mm image, which of course is another question that doesn't even have to do strictly with the difference between, you know, the difference in scale and between TV and, and projection, because you've seen digital projection a lot lately. I felt that for this particular show it was really important that everything be 35mm, because now people are used to seeing, you know, digital projection, which is from an economic standpoint, perfectly understandable. In terms of the quality of the image, the way that the films were actually meant to be seen, the way that they were shot, the play of the grain on the screen, silver particles, the richness of the 35mm image, the lustrousness of it, that's something that is really obviously impossible to duplicate digitally. In the same way that someone like you know Neil Young said that he doesn't like digital audio recording because he likens it to analog recording being like looking through a screen and seeing the patterns and what you're looking at, digital recording being able to look through one hole at a time. By the same token, I think that that's true of the visual digital image. You know, this all sounds to me that we're talking about film preservation, also the idea of preserving yeah. these classics. Yeah. But again, it's the same thing that we mentioned before, that the schools don't have that list of films that they should see. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're expecting them to learn how to make movies. Yeah. Because they're using these digital cameras and everything, and they're creating their little stories and stuff. Yeah. But should there be like a film list of classics that students should see, or even people like me, I love film and I go back whenever yeah. I have an opportunity to see these. Now this is a perfect opportunity mm. 
to get back to seeing the classics is like reading the classics. People go back to that. Yeah. I think, I suppose that that is important, saying that the kids that you encountered when you introduced Celeste Holm to them didn't know who Betty Davis was and that she was shocked. She was surprised. You know, just, you it's know, surprising. She I mean, was a little distressed about well, it, you know, because yeah, of, well, of these films. We screened her film, All, all About all Eve. About Eve yeah. And the audience was packed, yeah. you know, with people who remembered her yeah. and remembered her films, and then yeah. she just lit up. Well, it's distressing. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Madame Tussauds Wax Museum on 42nd Street. There's no good reason you should go because it costs way too much money to enter. But when you go in, you know, when I went in, I was expecting to see Humphrey Bogart and Spencer Tracy. And, you know, I mean, forget it. You know, it's just like they're not there. What you're seeing is Samuel L. Jackson and... Um, Nicholas Cage and everybody from now and I was a little bit shocked at that I was shocked at the fact that everything can be deemed so replaceable on the one hand yeah you know I mean I was gonna say the people who don't know who Betty Davis is because of school at least know the name Shakespeare you know they probably know the name Herman Melville should that be the same with cinema yeah there should be such a thing as visual literacy because literacy is literacy, and you know, I mean, words and images are close together. They're not far apart the way that people imagine them. At least, you know, in terms of the way that the imagination works and the way that they're put together. But I think the idea of official canons is a tricky one because it can also alienate people too when they feel like they're being, you know, educated constantly. That can be alienating. I think in other cultures that I've been in, there's more of a tradition of remembering. There's more of a tradition of handing things down. The United States is a tricky culture in that sense. I think they feel that film is entertainment. Yeah, but I also think that, that there's a thought that if you spend too much time remembering the past, you don't have your eye on the, on the ball. You know, you're, you're, you're keeping your eye up where things are really at, which is the future. And of course, you know, as recent history is teaching us, that's not a, not really a good idea. I yeah, mean, but cinema is pretty young. It's only been around for a hundred years. Yeah, and yet people have already have managed to forget a lot of uh, a lot of the cinema that's been made. Right. So you know, yes, it's young, but then you know, according to the time frame by which a lot of people operate, it's old already. I mean, you know, to a lot of people, it's probably already a thing of the past. Watching cinema or cinema. just cinema itself, film, well, film cinema, or watching it in a theater—that's sort of have their their audiences. When it comes to going out to the movies, paying ten bucks and getting popcorn and going to see a movie, I for one don't really enjoy it very much anymore. You know, I mean, you go to a place that looks like every other place where you can go see a movie. I mean, a mall. You pay an exorbitant amount for soda and popcorn and candy. Exorbitant amount. You sit down and most likely you're watching commercials for 10 minutes. And then after they're over, you see a bunch of really bad previews. And then the movie starts. And then people have become so attuned to um, sitting at home and watching movies that I've seen people take cell phone calls and happily chatter away. You know, they don't really care. You know, they get insulted when they're shushed. And it's I, that's the way that things have evolved, but I mean, I find it's very different from the way it was when I was younger. You know, I just think that it's, it's, it's not that pleasant an experience to, to go see a movie. And then, you know, there's the question of the movies themselves that are, that are in multiplexes. I mean, 
and I'm not alone in thinking that you know a lot of them are so not made for posterity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So film festival audiences that come to the New York Film Festival, you feel that they are more educated as um, film lovers, um, film goers? Well, this is a different kind of festival than, I mean, it's a venerable festival and it has its, its long-term fans and supporters and, you know, it's, it also has, I mean, every film has its own different audience. Uh, also, but um, yeah, I would say I would say most likely nine times out of ten, if you're going to a film festival, you have a vested interest in cinema. It's not like you're you're just kind of trying it out to to do something new. And I mean, that's as it should be. You know, it's it's if you're interested in something, you know, there should be different avenues for which to pursue it. You know, I I think. It's not necessarily a question of being more educated. Maybe they've seen more movies, you know, more older movies. That's undoubtedly true. But I think that they just probably, you know, there is such a thing as a culture of cinema, you know. And you can, I don't mean culture with a capital no, C I, in quotes. I mean a culture of cinema, you know. Right, and, and I understand, because I grew yeah. up watching movies also. Yeah. You know, yeah. it would be on a Sunday afternoon, uh, any kind of movies. They used yeah. to play old movies all yeah. the time. I love movies. I yeah. love the theater experience, the big screen, yeah. and film festivals. Those films that you're talking about, and by the way, I mean, you can see, I, I, I would have to disagree with you. I think that now, if you have access to cable, which not everyone does, but, you know, most people do, there's more of an opportunity to see older films than there used to be, and they're not cut for commercials. I mean, you know, Turner Classic Movies, for me, if I, you know, if I could, I would, you know, devote more of my time to sitting there watching a lot of it. But, you know, it's oh no, it's, I've it's seen some great ones. I have, you know, seen the Fox I, Movie yeah. Channel has wonderful things, and I just think, in terms of this idea, the films that you're talking about and the idea of a culture of cinema, they were made from that culture. You know, I mean, the people who ran the studios had certainly, you know, were interested in making money, but they also had an idea of movies. They had an idea of cinema. They had an idea of, you know the moving image and a lot of the films that turn up now in multiplexes are not made from what I would call a culture of cinema, they're made from a culture of commerce. You know, in other words, the stories are there to facilitate, they're like vessels and you can pour different elements into these vessels that are meant to appeal to different constituencies and different, you know, mixes of people and, you know, bring as many people into the tent as possible. And, I mean, how many movies have you seen in the last, you know, 20 years that end with chases and where people learn lessons at the end and where, you know, there's not one but three endings and where, you know, every time someone opens their mouth, a one-liner comes out. Everybody has a good cry. You know, I mean, it's just... It's a formula. Well, yeah, and there were formulas before, you know, but there was an idea of, within those formulas, inventing. The American filmmakers that... Uh, that everyone admires now did exactly that, and who were admired then too. I'm talking about John Ford and Sam Fuller and Elia Kazan, and you know Kazan maybe a little bit less because he came after the studio system was, or at the moment that the studio system was coming apart. But what I mean is that, you know, there was an idea of, of invention of the film of the presence of the filmmaker and the presence of an artist meaning something, and I just feel like not the case anymore at all. That you know what people are looking for in terms of what one sees in the multiplexes are people who are not artists, if they are, then it's just going to gum up the, the machinery, you know, so.
in that sense, you know, film festivals represent something significant. You know, they represent a real alternative where you are seeing somebody, something that is a culture of cinema where the films are made by people who have an idea of, of, of movies as something more than just commerce. Well, I'm really looking forward to this collection of films that's coming up. I have the schedule. Yeah. And uh, which one is the first one showing? In the Janus yeah. show, Rules of the Game by Jean Renoir, which, uh, well, among other things, you know, in Film Comment, Paul Schrader wrote a piece that was intended to be the introduction to a book where he talks about a film canon and the criteria for developing a film canon. And he, you know, comes out and says Rules of the Game is basically the place to start. It's the number one film. One can debate that, but it certainly, you know, exists within that realm. It's just an incredible film. And it is also a film that, when it was first shown, was hooted and hollered off the screen. And then the original negative was destroyed during the war. The film has been reassembled from cobbled together, a version that was actually longer than what was originally seen, but that was cobbled together from outtakes and different, you know, prints that um, these two men, whose names I forget now, found in France in 1958, and they worked with Jean Renoir to, to reassemble that version. But it's never been, the prints that we've seen have never looked that good because they've always been done, you know, the original negative was lost, so it's a few generations down. And this is the first screening of a print that's been made from a digital restoration, and so um, it's significant. But there are a lot of great films in the series. I mean, I, I, there's Wild Strawberries, Monica by Bergman, there's Seven Samurai by Kurosawa, The Makioka Sisters by Kony Chikawa, and Fires on the Plain by Chikawa, Beauty and the Beast by Cocteau. It's a cornucopia of masterpieces. <laughs> it's <laughs> Harvest. Yep. I am really looking forward to uh, coming up here and taking a look and seeing it on the big screen. So well, I want to thank you very much for taking your time here with me. Sure. I look forward to seeing you here. I will be here. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Now, I'm planning on seeing Rules of the Game and getting reacquainted with classic film. I was also fortunate to have seen the press screening of a new film that has the makings of a classic film, in my opinion. The Queen, directed by Stephen Frears, written by Peter Morgan and starring Dame Helen Mirren as Queen Elizabeth II. This film takes the audience behind the scenes of the royal family when one of the most media-frenzied events, the death of Princess Diana, in a disastrous car crash, held the world in grief and waiting to see what the leaders of the Queen and the Prime Minister, newly elected Tony Blair, will do as the public came forth in such an unexpected display of profound grief and emotion. Um, it was very well done. I remember that event and thought how absurd it was that people were so upset over someone they didn't even know. And that uh, Princess Di was um, only around as part of the royal family for 16 years. How could that undermine in one week the Queen's 50-year reign and her devotion to her country? To me, it seemed really strange and unbalanced, and but the fact remained, Princess Di was loved, as was the Queen. A few days ago, I had to put my cat to sleep after 16 years, and it, it made me really sad. And, you know, the next day, uh, the morning of the screening, I met a woman who had recently lost her soulmate and true love after 54 years 
and my grief over a pet cat seemed so small and insignificant. But it's still love and grief and loss and what you have to do is put it into the right perspective and take it from there. That's all you can do. Thanks for listening.